Welcome to LifeSide Beat. I'm your host, Shubham Chatterjee. In our final episode of our first season, I'm so excited to share my interview with John Evans, CEO of Beam Therapeutics. Beam Therapeutics is a leader in the nascent gene editing space, pioneering proprietary-based editing to develop precision genetic medicines. Beam has most recently closed a research collaboration with Pfizer earlier this year, worth up to $300 million. John was previously SVP of Portfolio Leadership at Agios Pharmaceuticals, commercializing their first in-class IDH inhibitor, Adhifa. Prior to Agios, John worked in Infinity Pharmaceuticals and McKinsey. John earned his bachelor's in English from Yale, his MBA from Wharton, and master's in biotechnology from UPenn. We had an incredible conversation on the business of biotech. So please join me and John on LifeSide Beat. John, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks. So let's begin the interview off with an icebreaker. It's a question we like to ask many of our guests just to start off the conversation. What did you want to be when you were growing up and how did that lead you to where you are today? I had lots of different ideas about my future. So I think it's important to kind of keep following your path because it doesn't always become clear right away. Uh, I originally wanted to be a physicist. I actually went to college to do physics and then pivoted. I had an English major phase and then ended up going to business. But even in business, I was lucky enough to get pretty early exposure to the pharmaceutical industry. And so that ended up being the thing that drew my attention the most. From there, pretty much I had a fairly linear path, I'd say, although I had to get from consulting to big pharma companies to working in small early stage research biotechs. But generally, once I had found the medicines industry, I I, I stayed there. Gotcha. And I know from your journey that after consulting, you also spent a considerable amount of time at biotechs like Infinity Pharmaceuticals and Agios and now Beam Therapeutics more recently. When I think about your journey, what's your thought process with regards to going to biopharma first to pick up some skills prior to transitioning to smaller companies versus going directly into earlier stage, more entrepreneurial biotech? I know this is something our listeners are thinking through as well. So I'd love to get your perspective there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Something I've thought a lot about. I had no idea what early stage biotech was when I was starting out. So I think, you know, I didn't even have the aperture that maybe some folks who are listening do. I basically had a temp job at Bayer Pharmaceuticals, and that was enough to give me the, the clue that this was really interesting. I was working for the people running their hemophilia divisions. So then when I went to McKinsey to do consulting, I said, hey, where's your pharmaceutical business? So from there, it was really following my instincts. Projects that I liked the most were the ones that had the most science. And maybe those ended up being a little earlier stage. Maybe they were a clinical phase two go, no go analysis. So I started to to pivot. And so then basically when I came, when I came up to Cambridge, ended up going to Infinity, which was a five-year-old phase one, 150 person cancer company and loved it. You know, it was an incredible experience. And then from there, when I was ready for the next challenge, I went to Agios, which is about 20 people. And then Beam, I was the first person. So I think it's a pretty linear progression, actually. And and what was happening was each time when I'd have two or three options in front of me, I would be drawn to the one that was a little on the smaller side and a little more sciencey. It turns out that I've followed that all the way. And now I do, obviously, these early stage biotechs. So I think that people who are making that decision, 
the, the one thing to realize is how different small stage biotech is from larger companies. The, the smaller you get, the more you really don't have any guardrails. You are just expected to show up and sort of know what you're doing pretty fast because it's all about execution and, you, and speed. You don't have a lot of on-the-job training time. So that tells me either one of two things. Either you should do what I did, which is to sort of steadily get smaller. Don't spend too long in the bigger phases, but you want to get some experiences at, at larger companies where you learn what it should look like, and then you can go and, and do it. The, the other option is just to make sure if you're going to jump more quickly into the smaller end that you have incredible mentors already in place. People who've done it before, they know what to do, and they know you may not know what to do, but they can teach you and that that's the trade. I think one or the other of those needs to be true if you're going to take that leap into something smaller. But, but I think if you can do that, I think it's an incredible place to be because the smaller you go, the more you see the whole picture. You can see how the science we're doing generates data, that data has value, that value is converted into investment dollars, either through partnerships or equity investments, and then we make a decision to invest that do those dollars into more science, and that's all being built on a platform of an organization and a culture as well. And so how all that fits together for me is the most fascinating thing about biotech. And it's and the smaller you go, the more you see it. That makes a lot of sense. I know it's maybe not the most straightforward answer that some might be looking for, but I appreciate your sophisticated perspectives, right, on the nuance that's going to be there for everyone's journey. I now want to pivot a bit into your experience at Agios. At Agios, you let portfolio leadership there for their first-in-class IDH inhibitors and approvals. So looking back, could you share some of your key learnings in terms of stewarding these therapies from you know, the early preclinical stages all the way to the final approval? Yeah, great, great questions and a lot in there. One of the great things with biotechs is you just can get involved in so much because there's so much to do and not enough people to do it. And and if you're talented or ambitious or passionate, you, you will find a way to add value. And so at Infinity, for instance, actually the, the, the earlier company, I was initially doing business development and investor relations. And then they tapped me to go and lead our lead oncology program as a project leader. It was an amazing experience. And I spent two and a half years doing that on the critical path with the team of toxicology and clinical and, and regulatory and manufacturing all you know around the table trying to figure out a way to develop this drug. And that's the heart and soul of the industry for me is how do you make, make medicines? So that was an amazing experience. It's still one of my favorite jobs. Unfortunately, the drug failed because it was not clinically validated or genetically validated, although in animal models, it looked like it would help. So that was a tough experience to see that fail, but it taught me a lot. So then I went to Agios and, and again, I was the second business person there, number, number 20 in the team, ran business development. I led our alliance. But again, actually, the most fun things I did were early days, I was again tapped to help start our second therapeutic area after cancer, which was rare diseases. And then when we had proof of concept in the clinic with our IDH inhibitors in cancer, I got again pulled over to be an executive sponsor of that team and help lead them from basically phase one proof of concept through approval. This time, it was very clear the drug worked. And the reason that was so clear was genetics the thing we didn't have at Infinity. And so now there was a clear gain of function mutation in these two metabolic enzymes, IDH1 and IDH2, which basically starts creating this high level of a metabolite that shouldn't be there, that rewires the cell and causes cancer. And so this couldn't be simpler. You make two drugs that turn off those mutations, depending on which one you have, and we stop the production of that metabolite, which you can see go down to the bloodstream. So you have an instant biomarker readout. 
when you do that, you, the cells suddenly go from being cancerous blasts to being normal blood cells. And we had a, a very you know, good response rate for patients who you know, really should be dead in two to three months. And so we went very fast at that point. In fact, we were living sort of batch to batch in terms of product supply because the demand was so great. It was so clearly going to help people. And so we, we sprinted. We ultimately got those drugs approved in about four years from IND in both cases, which is very fast. You just have to do that. You know, patients are, are waiting. You have to be really urgent and push as fast as you can. And in that case, we had the genetics on our side and we had a clear signal, uh, which was amazing. The, the beam opportunity, maybe just to bridge, builds on that a little bit. Because for me, the exciting part about that experience was seeing when genetics can give you that clear path. And we call that precision medicine. And so with beam, because they're all genetic targets, they're all precision medicines, which is amazing. And so we have every single time we will know who to treat and we will be able to hopefully see a signal early in phase one that this is positive and then set up that relatively rapid path to approval. Now, these are gene editing medicines, so they're not going to go quite that fast because there's a lot of new things we need to work out. But in general, these should not be eight to 10 year paths to approval. The second thing, though, that, that was important about Beam for me was the fact that unlike small molecules, this is a platform. So at Agios, we got two drugs approved really fast, but then we've been waiting a long time for the third. And every new drug is basically start from scratch, new target, new chemistry. Whereas with genetic medicines like Beam and, and gene editing, again, it's hard to do the first time. But once we've done it once, the second, third, fourth time will be much faster. That's because the, the, the systems are basically programmable. So once we've done it once to a given tissue, we can do it again and again. So I think that promise of they're all precision medicines, they should all have relatively higher probability of success, certainly in the clinic in terms of lower biology risk, but it's a real platform that once we engineer it, we can do this sustainably. That for me, especially given my previous experiences, was the magic solution. Got it. And it sounds like, you know, based off of your incredible experiences at Agios, the key there was to have this clear genetic driver behind disease to boost probability of success and have a better path towards clinical development. And for Beam, more recently, it sounds like this was then combined with the power of a platform. So you could, you know, bring out medicines, build off of what you already know, and then ultimately accelerate the approval process. So for listeners, if we take a step back here, could you help us understand what the Beam gene editing platform really is and why its programmable nature is so powerful? Yeah. And, and just to say on the previous point, I mean, in biotech, you're always taking risk. That's why the returns can be great, but that's, you know, you've got you've to get rid of the risk on the way. And it's just a matter of where you take it, right? So there are definitely great businesses out there to be a small molecule company or an antibody company where the, the how to do it is relatively straightforward. And the question is target risk, which targets to go after. The low-hanging fruit has long ago been plucked. People are taking a lot more biology risk, uh, and that won't play out until later in the clinic. For me, I, I prefer the other way, which we're doing here at Beam, which is I want to take my risk early, and then if I can work it out preclinically, I want to have less risk in the clinic. And it's just, it's just different. So for Beam, it's all about technology risk. It's not a, not a mystery whether these mutations are causing the disease or if I can fix the mutation, I fix the disease, right? The mystery is how do I change the genome of, of a certain set of cells? So gene editing was always a more elegant idea. Can we get into the cell and actually just change the genome where it is and then have that be a permanent durable effect? Uh, the most famous way to do this is CRISPR. And the reason is because it's by far the easiest to use to target the genome because the targeting element 
is just a short RNA sequence, and that's fully programmable. Just literally type in the 20 bases you want it to target. It will search the genome, find a spot, and bind, uh, and then cut. And so there's a few places where that's working well. Uh, CRISPR and Vertex are doing well in sickle cell disease. Antelia has been able to knock out a gene in the liver on TTR. Uh, so clearly that, that's working well, which is very exciting. The drawback where we come in is that that cutting, the edit itself, is fairly blunt. All you can do is create a double-stranded break, and you kind of hope the cell will do something therapeutic with the pieces. But you really have no control, and you actually end up getting a fairly random genetic outcome. So if you want to scramble a sequence, that works, but you, you don't have a lot of control. Beam is designed to be a next-generation version of, of gene editing, where we use CRISPR to target within the genome. But now, instead of that cutting, we don't cut, we just land, we open up the DNA, and then we use a second component that makes a single base change called a deaminase. And so we make a single letter swap, like a C to a T or an A to a G, chemically modifying the base itself so that it is read by the cell differently. And so this gives us the ability to basically make precise, predictable point mutation changes within the genome, doing things like fixing point mutations, which are single letter misspellings in genes and things like sickle cell disease or reprogramming genes. You can turn them off, you can turn them on, you can change their function, all with single base changes. And in every one of those cases, you're avoiding the double-stranded break that is also a place where you lose a lot of control in the other systems. And so, you know, we're super excited about this. It, it, we do believe it is a best-in-class editing strategy. And so we're rapidly developing this so we can bring it to patients as quickly as we can. That's incredibly fascinating. And it's very clear how powerful the programmable nature of the platform truly is. I'm curious to get your take on the precision medicine aspect of this. You know, with the specific gene edits, as you mentioned, there are very clear subsets of patient populations to go after, right? So would this pose challenges in terms of scalability as you go to the commercial front, since you're continually going after small subsets of patients kind of simultaneously? Yeah, it's a great point. I'd say a bit of both. I think that, I mean, so we're starting with bigger populations for sure. So things like sickle cell disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, they are defined by the same mutation. Every patient has the same mutation. So if we fix that one mutation, that's a drug for all patients. We then have other opportunities, things like our glycogen storage disease program or our StarGuard program, where we're going after what are called founder mutations. So these are mutations that are predominant uh, in the population, but not everybody has the same mutation, right? So maybe you're getting 25%, 30% of a population, something like that. And that's still a large amount of people that we're going to cure. Over time, you, there are definitely places where it gets pretty rare. You're getting to smaller percentages. And so, you know, as you go smaller and smaller, it will require more regulatory innovation for sure. Now, to your point, the platform is making up for it. So if we can treat mutation number one in a given disease, and we know we can deliver to that organ, and, you know, the editing is efficient... It's, it would be relatively simple to create the editor for mutations two, three, four, and five, right? So even though those may be smaller, they are simpler, and they would definitely have a much higher probability of success than the first one because we'd worked all of that out. I think the other thing that we are going to look for over time in this area is regulatory innovation, where you're going to look for the FDA to say, okay, you don't have to do as much for mutations two, three, four, and five because you've already shown us you can do it in number one. And so that, that's a critical piece. And the FDA is talking about this all the time. And the limit, you get to personalized medicine, where it's literally an end of one therapy. And I think that is a world that will come, and these sorts of tools will be quite appropriate for that. Now, all that said, I want to point out that Beam does a lot more than just point mutation correction, right? So, so you're, that paradigm you just framed is really only relevant in the smaller parts of point mutation repair. 
But everything else that we do with base editors where we're just modifying the human genome, whether it be silencing genes, activating genes, changing the function of proteins through surface modifications, you know, I really, we're really in the very early stages of thinking through how to use a precise editing tool like a base editor for therapeutic effect. All of those are universal strategies. So there I don't care about what specific mutation you had that broke a gene. I'm going to do something that every patient will benefit from. And so in those cases, we actually don't have any commercial limitations because you're not getting to any narrow populations. In fact, you're opening up quite large populations. And, and those are the kinds of things that actually bring us to even beyond rare disease. I mean, it's an incredibly exciting and powerful scientific strategy. And it's already gotten traction in terms of Beam's 3 billion market cap to date, for example. And I know a key part of this development and part of the platform validation comes through alliances and partnerships that you've actually already touched upon. So I just want to circle back a bit to that. You mentioned, for example, how you led the landmark alliance with Celgene while at Agios. And earlier this year, Beam just closed a massive partnership with Pfizer. So I'd be curious to get your take on some of the learnings in leading these collaborations and also how to think about partnering with pharma for some of our listeners out there who might have ownership over their own cutting edge technology and are seeking a way to really scale it. So this is a really important part of building a biotech is how do you get from here to there, right? You, you need to de-risk your programs. You need to move some things forward, generate value, but you want to do it in a way that gets you to the point where the science is working, the products exist, and you own enough of them to make a difference for the business, right? So that's a, that's a tricky thing. And so you're basically, your two options are partnering and then equity financing, right? So, so with Angios, when we did the Celgene deal, this is 2010, uh, this is quite a while ago, there really wasn't an equity market for biotechs. It was sort of coming out of the nuclear winter of 2006, 2010, and we really didn't have a lot of options. And so we did, it was tough to think about how to fund that actually. And so the Celgene deal was this amazing, you know, innovative structure where we basically said to Celgene, look, we're going to spend this much money on novel targets in a really hot area over the next five years. Do you want to come co-fund some of that with us? And then we'll share the spoils. And very strategic. And so they ended up giving us $130 million up front, which at the time was a huge amount. And we, in return, shared with them a lot of the programs that we had. And so they would get rights to our cancer metabolism programs, but we kept U.S. rights in at least one out of every three programs, which was a way we would still have some value downstream. Great deal, allowed us to build the company, allowed those drugs to get developed and approved, and indeed the IDH drugs came out of that alliance. That said, if you think back on it, it was actually fairly dilutive, right? It wasn't dilutive on equity, but it was dilutive on product value. Right. So if out of every three products, we would get a royalty on two of them and a 50, you know, about half of the value of the U.S. rights on one of them, you've given away about two thirds or more of the of the control and value in that portfolio. Now, it's better than not being able to do it at all. So it was a great deal. And it was an amazing alliance and relationship. And we actually did a 2.0 version of that deal six years later. But, you know, by today's lens, I would look back on that and say that was actually a pretty expensive deal. So fast forward to Beam, and we have the same consideration. How do, we, how do we fund all of the opportunity that's in front of us? And here, of course, the opportunity is really vast because of that programmability point about these genetic medicine platforms. And so we made the decision that we didn't want to do a big deal early. And kind of with that Celgene deal in the back of my head, I think we were thinking, well, that's just too dilutive. You give away too much control 
of what you're doing. And so we actually held off that and we and still to this day, we really haven't done a major deal within our core pipeline. We've kept all those assets wholly owned. Now we can do that because the equity markets have been better. So we've been able to raise, uh, we had a great IPO, we've been able to raise money on the public markets and, and invest that, which is good. But partnering does still play a role for us. And But what we've been able to do is we've partnered things that, that are more on the, the flanks of what we're doing, you know, sort of adjacencies, you know, targets that we aren't doing yet that we, that we may not plan to do in the near term, but that could move forward for patients in someone else's hands. And so we've done a few different flavors of that. We've done ones with other biotechs, actually, which I think is really interesting. Uh, we did do with Verve, where we said, you know, they were a cardiology dream team. So we looked at the editing of the cholesterol pathways to prevent heart attack, which is a great application, um, but one that would really need cardiology expertise. And so we said, let's give that to Verve. They will move it forward, but we keep, uh, we have an opt-in right to 50% of the US in those programs. So it's a way to create value, do more for patients, but we don't have to do it ourselves. On more of the you know, larger company side, we did a deal with the Palace, uh, and then of course the Pfizer deal. And the Pfizer deal was basically three different targets and three different tissues, liver, CNS, and muscle. And they're again, targets that we like, but we weren't getting to ourselves immediately. And so it made a lot more sense to partner them with them to put their horsepower behind that. And that of course had a $300 million upfront, which helps, you know, significantly with both extending our runway, but also allowing us to continue investing aggressively in the areas of science we want to invest in. So I think so far we've used partnering sort of tactically and strategically. You know, we've been able to generate that kind of income, generate new value and optionality for Beam, get the technology moving even more broadly than we can possibly do ourselves, which is going to help patients, but maintain control and value in our core pipeline, which is, uh, I think, really important to us. Gotcha. That's an incredibly sophisticated perspective on partnering. And I really appreciate the distinction you're making, right, between creating this enterprise value versus capturing that enterprise value for your organization versus the partner organization. I'd like to now move the conversation within the gene editing space, but a bit more broadly beyond Beam. I know there's a variety of gene editing approaches that are out there, you know, CRISPR, BASE, Prime, even epigenetic. And as this world continues to evolve, do you see a world in which one approach adopts like a winner takes all, or do you see the value of different gene editing applications to different diseases? I, you know, I've, I've said before, I think there's sort of a Cambrian explosion right now of, uh, of new editing tools and techniques and strategies, which is really exciting. So I, I don't have a crystal ball necessarily, but we've thought a lot about this question. And so I'd say a few things. One is I think at least as of today, and I don't see a reason why this would change around, I think if you could do gene editing instead of gene therapy, namely to just correct or make a permanent change in the native genome versus adding an extra gene in elsewhere, I think you'd rather do that. So I think there's a tailwind for gene editing in general. I think within gene editing, I now feel pretty confident that if you can avoid the double-stranded break, I think you want to do that, okay? Because that's just adding a lot of entropy into the genome. I mean, there's a lot of random outcomes and some of them are worrying and just, I think it's just generally something you'd like to avoid. So both of those things tell me that, that Beam is well positioned because we are obviously doing gene editing. We have the first form of gene editing that doesn't require the double-stranded break, which is base editing. So that, that's important. From there, I think we look to the future. I don't personally see this as a winner-take-all situation because I think that at some point you will end up with many different ways to get to certain kinds of outcomes or tools that are, that are best for certain types of editing and, and other tools that are needed for other types of editing. So 
I mean, from our perspective, I think if you want to make a high efficiency in any cell type edit that is highly narrow and precise, you know, one letter change, I think base editing looks like the winner. If you want to insert a gene, obviously base editing isn't going to work, right? So, so that's totally different. And so there are uh, lots of other ways to think about inserting genes. And that's a little bit of where there's a lot of activity right now. We're watching it carefully and we do some of our own research in those areas as well. But that would be complementary to base editing, not replace it. And so, you know, I think we'll see how that goes. I guess the other point that I see coming is it isn't always going to be about the editing payload or, you know, what your mousetrap is, right? You can always try to build a better mousetrap, but at some point, mousetraps have gotten pretty good and it's going to be more about how you're delivering it. So I actually suspect that the next front for a lot of different competition and positioning is going to be around the delivery of these things as much as the payload. And so that's a place where Beam has been investing aggressively as well. So originally, we made the important fateful decision that we would go after all the available delivery mechanisms known to genetic medicine that were clinically validated. So this was ex vivo editing of blood cells, ex vivo editing of T cells and CAR T, in vivo lipid nanoparticles to the liver, and then viral vectors to the eye. So we said, okay, it's 2018, let's do all of them. It's been a lot of work to do all of them because really those are very different from each other. They need different people, different assays, different approaches, different processes. But I think it's paid off because now I think we can do all of those things and we've built those capabilities. So much so that now in the last probably year and a half to two years, we've actually been focused on starting to innovate in delivery as much as on editing. At some point, you do get to diminishing returns on the payload side and it'll be more about can you open up new fronts delivery and, and ultimately Beam's vision is to be the leading precision genetic medicine platform company, which means we need to have whatever payload we need to do the right kind of edit and whatever delivery we need to get to the right place of the tissue. And then finally, we need to be able to make it. So that's manufacturing. So we're building a facility in North Carolina that will be very flexible. that can make all these different components. And once you have all of that under one roof, now you've really got the critical mass to capture the value here, uh, both for our own pipeline, because then we can you know, always have the right program internally, but also, of course, be a one-stop shop for partners, both big and small, uh, to do you know, even more where we can put all those pieces together for them. Gotcha. I mean, it's so exciting to hear about the different approaches that are out there and seeing how they complement each other. And as you mentioned, there are even newer mousetraps coming out, but I definitely agree that the forefront today includes not just how to edit the genome, but really how to edit it at the right place, which as you mentioned, is where delivery comes into play. And with these different applications, another element that folks have noticed is that the initial applications where these sorts of therapies play tend to be more rare diseases. So I'd love to get your take in terms of, you know, one, why that might be, but also two, what would it take to pivot these more novel editing approaches to much larger disease areas like cardiology or diabetes? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. I, I would maybe reframe it a little bit. We, we think of ourselves as working on serious diseases, which are often rare, but are not always rare. And I think the serious point is the more important piece because you know th this is new technology. So you know the FDA and we and, and the community will always be a little bit more cautious when it's new technology. And so we do need to be do the right things, do the right science, make sure it's safe and make sure it's well tested, but there are uncertainties, right? And so as a result, whenever you're doing clinical trials, you need to have that balance of the prospect for benefit relative to the severity of the unmet need, 
and then compare that to the risk of the unknown, right? I mean, as far as we know, these systems are all safe. You know, we, we, we do great off-target work. We, we go very deep on that. But there's just, it's new. There's only so much you know. And so by definition, because the, the risk is still being characterized, you need to go to places that have high urgency to treat and where that prospect for a big benefit is there. So that's the more serious diseases. When you start to think in that bucket, and you think about genetics, you know, and genetic diseases, you know, they do tend to be rare diseases. Although, you know, sickle cell disease, there's 100,000 patients in the U.S. There are, you know, millions around the world, but they're still categorized as, as orphan uh, to some degree in our country. But they're very severe and they need help. You know, we don't only want big diseases. We want the right diseases where there's high unmet need, where our technology can make a difference, and where we have high probability of technical success. It's risk that matters, big or small, those things are important and they help us move the technology forward. All that said, we are moving towards a world where increasingly common diseases are targetable. So the verb example I already gave you, heart disease is very common, it's still the number one killer of people in the world. So that is a great application. Now, obviously they're not gonna go immediately to everybody. They will go initially to the patients who are most at risk of a fatal heart attack in the near future and treat them and then gradually expand out over time as the comfort with the technology and the follow-up you know, increases. There are going to be lots of these bigger populations over time. It's primarily a matter of lining it up with the unmet need and the urgency to treat. And then gradually, as the comfort with these technologies grows, we will be able to penetrate more and more of the medical system. And you know, for me, I fast forward 15, 20 years, and I say, what percentage of total therapies are going to be these one-time interventions versus a chronic medicine you might be on for life, which is the traditional paradigm? And I think it'll be a lot more than today. I don't know what the percentage will be, but I think that it will be a lot. Now, now these will be expensive therapies as well, which we can talk about, and that, that's something that we will have to work through. But I think the value of the healthcare system overall will be a net savings because you're preventing medical costs and you're displacing expensive chronic therapies from other biotechs and pharmas. And that is going to be a net savings and net benefit. So I think there's going to be a lot of tailwinds behind these sorts of things. And so I think there will be a push to bring this to broader and broader populations over time. That's a great point. And actually, let's spend a few minutes on that front in terms of access and healthcare costs. I know, for example, current cell and gene therapies to date have been really expensive on a patient-by-patient level. So if we look in the future, what would it take to make this more accessible, either in terms of the broader healthcare system writ large or on an individual patient level? I mean, I know thus far it's been tricky because of the greater R&D and COGS with these therapies, which have then you know, merited a higher price tag to recruit the initial investment. But what does access look like in the future? Yeah, so I think I'll argue a few different things. So, so first of all, the AAV point you made, I mean, yes, the hemophilia AAV products from Biomarin and others, they're in kind of a tough spot because it, it is billed as sort of a one-time therapy, but it clearly isn't quite one-time or we're not quite sure where it's going to trough out, but it has, it has been waning over time. At least as of today, I would not bill that as a one-time lifelong therapy. And so you're sort of in a four to five year therapy. But now I think, can you charge millions of dollars for that? Editing is different. I mean, editing will be permanent. And it's, it's from everything we've seen, it's a permanent change. There's no known mechanism by which the cell would know that an area had been edited and somehow turn that off, right? It is, as far as we can tell, a true permanent change. And I think there, you know, you can start to think about higher priced therapies. And we've seen this several times. So 
Novartis Zolgensma, which admittedly is an AAV, but as far as we can tell, it's a permanent change. You know, they had a great cost-benefit analysis showing that a $2 million therapy delivered about $5 million of benefit to the healthcare system. So I think that if you are treating someone who is young or in the prime of their life, they have productive years ahead, they have many years ahead, and you are removing a lifetime of, of medical care and hospitalizations, and you are displacing other expensive therapies, I actually don't think it's that hard to justify those high prices. That's different than saying it's easy to pay them. And so there's a payment issue, which is that one-time lumpy check that a payer has to write for a person in their plan, and that person might leave their plan in a few years. So there, there are real hurdles we need to solve. But I think if you step back and you say, is the healthcare system better off paying that kind of price? I think the answer will be yes. So that's the belief that I have. We still need to work on making them cheaper over time. And I do think that as technology advances, there will be a ways to democratize this and to, to bring it down. You know, a, every new technology starts out very expensive and it gets less expensive over time. So I can see over time, you know, the ability to sort of um, change the cost curve on some of these things. But all of it is new. So to some degree, it's going to start high priced and we need to then figure it out. But I think because we can make the case for value that we are transforming very serious diseases and displacing a lot of other expensive care, I think that's still going to be attractive. Got it. Well, these are incredibly thoughtful perspectives, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey and your insights with us today, John. Before we sign off, I know our listeners would love a bit of career advice from someone in your position. So for folks who are looking to break into or just succeed in biotech, what advice would you give? So I guess one point of advice I always give to people around the business school or graduate school time is don't freak too much out about your first job. You don't have to get the perfect job. You just need to get a job that is exciting to you. And then from there, I think mostly you just want to follow your curiosity and your passion. See what is most interesting to you and do more of that. You know, you'll make a series of choices. You'll have three, four, five jobs over time in, in the first decade or so. So you've got plenty of time to get it right. I think it's about more about that data collection and what really gets you motivated, what gets you excited, because that's going to be where you're going to be more passionate, you're going to work harder, and you're going to have, you're going to have better results. And then for biotech specifically, I guess the other point is, one is you'd really better like science, because this is, this is a science industry through and through. And I guess the other point, there's a debate in the world about this. But for me, I think at least my path, biotech has been really an apprentice model as well. So I think a lot about finding great people who know what they're doing, have done it before, not always successfully. Failure is hugely valuable, but just that they can, you know, you can kind of see great leaders in action and live that journey with them and see the decisions that they make, what works, what doesn't. And then that becomes very powerful for you when you do it the next time. And, you know, this is why I think that, at least for me, I think the idea of building up experience gradually over time in biotech, not jumping straight to trying to, to run something yourself right away. There's some wisdom to it because I think these are, these are highly complicated situations and bio, building a biotech is much more of an art, not a science. For me, at least, focusing on the apprentice model, thinking about who you've learned from, try to bring the next generation along with you from a teaching perspective is critical as well. You know, that, that has been the, the right recipe from my perspective. Got it. Well, I know a lot of us are going to take that to heart and internalize it and see if we can start the next Beam Therapeutics. So just wanted to thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. Excited to see where Beam Therapeutics goes next. Thanks so much.